very good morning. I think you are receiving, I'm not sure what handout you're receiving. Uh, I think that might be the handout for last week. So for those of you uh, who were not here, I wanted to make sure that you had a bit of context as to what we're talking about. And for those of you who were here, that will serve as a bit of a reminder. Uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you are surrounding us with a great cloud of witnesses. We thank you that uh, there is grace upon grace for sinners and that your love knows no bounds. It is reckless, never-ending, never-stopping. And you hunt us down and you pursue us and you draw us with cords of loving kindness. And we pray that even now, this morning, by the power of your Spirit, uh, you would refresh us and renew us as we look at the stunning gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So my name is uh, Tim Blackman, and I'm the chaplain of Wheaton College, and it has been a, a tremendous gift for me uh, to be with you last week and then today as well. So last week I introduced you to my friend, Hermann Friedrich Kohlbrüche, and some of our students are now referring to him as Dr. K. <laughs> he was born in Amsterdam on 1803, and he died in exile in Elbersfeld, Germany in 1875. And as you might recall, if you were here last week, this Dutch Reformed pastor lived and ministered between the navel-gazing piety and evangelical Methodism of those on the anxious quest for super-spirituality on the one hand, and the orthodox dogmatics, the ones saving themselves by correct doctrine and who use doctrinal correctness as a mighty fortress against God, on the other hand. Last week I told you a little bit about the story of his conversion, from his conversion, the moment when Kolbrüche discovered that the law was spiritual, that God was God, and flesh was flesh, and grace was grace. Everything you hear this morning will be directly from Kolbrüche. I Everything that, I, that I'm giving you, I have translated for you just for this occasion. And actually what I want to do is I want you to hear Kolbrüche's testimony. I've translated it for you. Here is what he says concerning himself. I'm not able to save myself. No matter how hard I tried and how badly I wanted to, I am unable to keep God's commandments. I'm not even able to turn to God, unable to even take a breath under my own steam. I'm not even able to break the power of one single sin, no matter how small and inconsequential, even if the sin is as weak as the strands of a spider's web, I am not strong enough to break the power of sin. I'm not able to resist the world and its scorn. And exactly when I re realize my powerlessness, 
I discovered the Lord is the strength of his people. I am only strong in the strength of the Lord. I am only happy in the joy of the Lord. I've known this to be true since I was a young man. I have known deep distress. And when I hovered over the abyss, no one, no one except for God himself heard me and helped me. I stand before you as a living witness, testifying of what God does with those who wait for him. I am a living witness of how well off you are if you remain in God's word. It's not about me. It is the living testimony in my mouth. In fact, it is not me at all, but Christ himself who will illumine your darkness. You will see it for yourself. I'm not a preacher because it is my job. I'm not trying to make a living or get rich and famous. I am serving you as one who was dead in trespasses and sins. And I have never, ever been disappointed when I trusted in his word. I'm not pretending. I'm telling you the truth. The end of all things is near. No masks or rags can cover you from the wrath of the Lamb. Hold fast to the truth I have given you. I live by it, and I will die by it. Through the centuries, the best teachers of the church, even our dear reformers, have been teaching the exact same thing on the basis of God's word. I'll give my life for this. I will not recant a single jot or tittle of what I've written and what you are now holding in your hands. God's word is pure gold and silver. I didn't just make this up. It's actually a, a Dutch phrase. He says, where, where you, if, you, if you invent something on your own, you shake it out of your sleeve. He says, I didn't just shake this out of my sleeve, is literally what he says. I have shared this with you out of my deepest suffering. Every day, every hour, every moment, I am utterly dependent upon God's grace and mercy. I am like a worm in the dust crawling around before the throne of grace. I have come to the end of myself. I no longer claim eligibility. That is, I no longer belong to myself. I used to think I had to save myself. I see this differently now. I used to think I could save myself. And my experience could not be more different than that. I used to think that if I wasn't making it happen, nothing was going to happen. This could not be further from the truth. I let it go and I've given up. God will be gracious to me and this means that I don't have to grasp for that which only brings death. If I fall back into that way of thinking, may God burn the work of my hands so that nothing will remain. All my work, all my activities, all my effort and labor to save myself, what do I have to show for? It is embarrassing because it produced nothing but death. I can still feel it. But now I know from personal experience, I am no longer my own. I do not belong to myself. My salvation, my good works, my sanctification, my justification, and my perseverance, it no longer depends on me. 
I did absolutely nothing to get born, and I can do absolutely nothing to get saved. In his own way, God has made his word come true to me, and this is enough. So that's just a brief testimony that Kolbrucher gives. And when you, when you hear him talk like this, you can see why I have entitled these two talks, Let Not Conscience Make You Linger. They are the words of that modern day hymn, Come You Sinners. And it warns us to not let guilt and shame be debilitating. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. And here you can see that Kolbruche is no longer dreaming of his own fitness. He no longer imagines himself as measuring up. He no longer imagines that he is one who is good enough, spiritual enough, pious enough, holy enough. Growth in the Christian life happens when you increasingly feel your need for God, and you recognize that all fitness comes from Jesus. Now, this, this morning, my, my desire is to be, to push this all a little bit further, to the point of making you, oh, just a wee bit uncomfortable. Um, because I think at the end of what I'm about to show you, You may very well conclude that Kolbrüche and I will push things a little bit too far. And this should all concern you because what you are about to see is not the way religion is supposed to work. But I will be relentless. If grace is an ocean, we will all be sinking this morning. So let's dive in. I want you to take out your Bibles for a moment. And I would like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And what I want to do this morning is introduce you to Kolbrich's commentary on Matthew 1 and 2. And I will actually focus primarily just on a few of the first 16 verses. Now, some of you are going to wonder, what does Matthew 1 have to do with Romans chapter 7, 14. Remember last week where he discovered the comma in Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, comma, sold under sin, which was his revolutionary moment. You're wondering, what does Matthew 1 have to do with Romans 7, 14? I will make the connection clear, but many of his friends said that Matthew 1 was the practical application for Kolbrüche of Romans 7, 14. And I want you to hear in his own words how he understands the gospel, and actually you will see how he reads the Bible. If you notice here the gospel of Matthew, it begins this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, 
and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and so on, and so on. Notice that the first words of that gospel are the book of the genealogy of Jesus. In the Greek, it actually reads the book of the Genesis of Jesus. And Kolbrucha sees that this is the Genesis story of how Jesus has become flesh. Now, let me make the connection between Matthew 1 and Romans 7, 14, as clear as I can. Remember, in Romans 7, 14, we discover we are flesh. We are human. We are sold under sin. We cannot save ourselves because the law is spiritual, holy, and perfect. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has become flesh. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Now, if you look at these few verses, you will notice that there is in front of us the recounting of the shameful, the despicable, the wretched, and fleshy Old Testament characters and their sordid history. And in each of their story, in each of these episodes, person by person, Kolbrucha actually says it is the genesis of Jesus who is coming in the flesh. The sinless one becomes sin so that sinners can be holy. Matthew 1 is a fleshy family history. There are skeletons in the closet. There, these skeletal moments are best kept secret. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Sorted affair by sorted affair, episode by episode, fleshy person after fleshy person. We see the genesis, the incarnation of Jesus Christ happening before our eyes. Look at how Matthew begins. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. You remember the story well, I'm sure. Abraham, heir of the promise, supposedly a father of many nations, patriarch of as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, and as many as the stars of heaven, with one giant problem. He's as good as dead. He's old and decrepit and impotent. And from the beginning of the book of Genesis, just as from the beginning of the book of Matthew, we discover, in the words of Kolbrucha, that the power of flesh has already, from the beginning, run out of steam. This marks the end of the ability of flesh, the hopes and dreams of the flesh. We are done with the power of the human flesh, with the abilities, presumptions, expectations, and honors of the flesh. The flesh brings nothing but hopelessness, misery, scorn, and sadness. And your flesh will be grieved because what you find here will not gratify it, but rather it will give you 
what is humanly unimpressive and offer only what is ridiculous, impractical, and unworthy of God. So the story of Abraham and Isaac is the story of how God does the impossible. He does the unthinkable. He raises the dead. He brings a son back to life. The story of Abraham is the genesis of faith, not the genesis of blood or the genesis of works. The story of Jesus in the flesh is the story of the insufficiency of everything attainable. The insufficiency of what is humanly possible. Because there is no amount of human ingenuity, scheming, lying, cheating, rearranging. No amount of flesh can rearrange the plan of God because the kingdom of God does not arrive through human intervention or contrivance. It is a stunning and miraculous work of God. In the end of the Abraham narrative, we read the word of the gospel, chapter 22, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Look at verse 2. Kolbrucha continues, Isaac is the father of Jacob. Of course, you know the story. Abraham and Sarah wanted to make something happen. In steps Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. She is presented. A son, Ishmael, handsome, firstborn, strong. Remember, though, that this is the genesis of faith, not the genesis of works. And God, again, does the unthinkable. Sing, O barren woman, We know you think it is a joke, but you are really going to have a son, Isaac. Now, in every worldly sense, in every carnal sense, Ishmael is supposed to be first. But that is all flesh. And this is the genesis of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus' incarnation. And Galatians chapter 3 actually tells us that it is this offspring, Isaac, That is Christ, because the inheritance comes not by the law, but by the promise. Abram was the father of Isaac, Isaac and the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Oh, remember those juicy stories about Jacob and Leah. Leah, the unwanted one, the undesirable one, the one whose flesh was weak, the one whose eyes were weak. She had no form or comeliness. But guess what? She ends up being chosen. And she ends up first. And she ends up giving birth. And she conceives again a son named Judah. Hebrews chapter 7, 14 tells us that this story is not just the story of Judah, but it is the story of the genesis of faith, the story of Jesus. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Listen to Kolbuch's commentary. When we distance ourselves from the flesh, its privileges, its promises, its driving and wanting, its power and fitness, and walking according to the flesh, when we freely let go of all our wantings, then and only then can God be God. And then, and only then, will he be honored and acknowledged. Because God does not choose according to the predilections, cravings, and privileges of the flesh. Listen to this. 
Matthew writes this to drive all indentured slaves away and strengthen the beloved against the heresy of the flesh. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, in, in such polite company, I am almost embarrassed to show you this chapter of the book of the Genesis of Faith. If you have any kind of Christian sensibility, you are going to be offended. Do you want me to remind you? How is it that Tamar ends up giving birth to Paris and Zerah? Remember, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, not just once, but twice. Her first husband, Ur, Judah's firstborn, is killed by God because of his disobedience. She is now left barren. Her second husband, Onan, like everyone else in the family, and how do I say this politely, has also taken matters into his own hands. Um, when I... When I asked a friend if I should include this line about Onan taking matters into his own hands, he said, some will be confused and others will blush. And that is the genesis of faith. Some are confused and others will blush. His seed is spilled all over the ground. And because of the bad stewardship of God's precious resources in the economy of salvation, he is judged and dies. We are O for two. So what is Tamar to do? She wants to see the fulfillment of God's promise. She decides that she's going to play dress up. She to, pretends to be a prostitute. Unconcerned with whether or not this is a sin, she disguises herself. She descends into the depths of depravity as long as the promise of God would be fulfilled. And Tamar, Kolbrich says, could say with Paul, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. She does not pretend to be holy. She pretends to be a whore. And without thinking about whether or not this is right or wrong, moral or immoral, without regards of what people would say, out of desperation, this doubly barren widow disowns herself and freely gives of herself one last time, even if it meant descending into the depth of depravity as long as the blessing of God would be fulfilled. And she discovers, just like Paul did in Acts chapter 9, how much she must suffer for the sake of the name. She pulled a trick. Judah gets the wool pulled over his eyes and does not know that he is having sex with Tamar. Tamar gets pregnant. And three months later, Tamar is accused of prostitution on account of her pregnancy. And upon hearing the news, Judah ordered that she be burned to death. But in an ironic coup de grace, Tamar sends the personal belongings, the staff, and cord to Judah that she had finessed from him during their evening together. And there is a baby. The baby's name is Perez. The name means the one who breaks through, or as Kolbrüche preferred it, the eruption. Perez is identified in the book of Ruth as the ancestor of King David, the 
ancestor of Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, child of whoredom and deception. So, so is, is Perez the child of whoredom and deception? Or, and this is where Kolbuch may push it too far, is Perez the child of faith? At one point, Kolbuch pretends that he is addressing young man Paris, and he says, Paris, when your mother gave birth to you, it was an act of faith. And where there is faith, there is God, and God causes all things to work together for good. Nothing is more controversial and will push our understanding of grace as far as Kohlbrüch's treatment of Genesis 38. This is the story of the Genesis, the official continuation and becoming of Jesus Christ. This is the scandal of grace. We could have, we could never have, and would never have invented a religion like this because it offends our every sensibility, every sense of decency and decorum. Moral decency, however, is not the currency in God's economy. It is not legal tender. Everyone born of God, will be just fine with Tamar in the family picture. Now go ahead, Kolbuch says, you can hate on it all you want. That's a loose translation from the Dutch. <laughs> you can balk at it, but I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Kolbuch was accused of being antinomian, is Kolbrucha trying to justify wrongdoing? Tamar's actions certainly were sinful, but while she sinned in word and deed, she believed and was justified through faith. She is concerned neither with appearance nor of holiness, of goodness, of uprightness, of being considered beyond reproach. She shrinks back neither from danger, depravity, or downfall. Well, if you are not wincing right now, if you are not bracing yourself, if you are not wondering if we have pushed the limits of grace, then maybe you don't understand what Kolbrüche is saying. We are simultaneously sinners and righteous. The believer is a sinner. We are unholy saints. Now, this is, of course, a significant discrepancy with the way we normally look at the world, but we are sinners and it is only by the imputation of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that we can be considered just and righteous. It is the scandal of the gospel. Kolbrüche cites a verse that I don't know that I had ever seen, Ezekiel 34, verse 31. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. I, I'm not sure if you can stomach much more. Uh, if you, if, if this is quite the Advent story. Uh, <laughs> verse 5 tells us of Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. There we go. In Matthew 1, Kolbuch cuts to the chase, and so will I. Some, he says, make a try, try to make it sound as if Rahab actually ran a bed and breakfast because the Hebrew could be translated as such. But he says flesh is always the enemy of God and tries to clean up our own past. Just look at your own life, he says. 
men and women continually want to keep up appearances before God just so that we can prove once and for all that we are special and worthy and deserving. All our plans to be near to God as fellow gods must shipwreck. Only then can we submit to the righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ. We can say it audaciously, Kolbuch says, Rahab was a prostitute. Yes, and in the latter days, thousands upon thousands of virgins and matrons will want to pretend her shame isn't real and imagine themselves to be holier than she is. But Rahab will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn them. She believes and she passes from death to life. She becomes the mother of Boaz, heir of the blessing of Abraham, procreator of the seed, and smack dab in the middle of her ruin is her rescue. These kinds of sinners are God's saints. The accusations that Kolbrucha was morally indifferent never stopped. But he stands with Luther. Luther says... In number 28 of his Heidelberg Disputation, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. <laughs> the love of God does not find, but it creates that which is pleasing to it. And Kolbrich had delighted to expose the sense of moral decency through which the sinner's chest swells with pride. But in the end, there is nothing more than a cunning and clever way of hiding from God. Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I, I, could, I could go on and on and on and on and on because the stories are there. The wretched, fleshy stories are there. The story of Jesse, the father of David, it reminds us that God works all things sub contrario, under opposites, just like David from among his brother voted least likely to be a shark hunter, mama's boy, a milksop. Kingdom honor and might were the furthest thing from his father's mind. This is not the kind of man people want. The people want a king. Unregarded by his father, misunderstood by his brother, this pubescent, prepubescent youngin is barely shaving, too small for the eyes of flesh. You wouldn't even bring this kid to watch the fight with Goliath, let alone participate. It is unthinkable, ridicule, too small, too inconsequential. Kolbrucha says, Leviathan gets killed by a swallow. This is God. The greatest tree in the forest of God gets knocked over branch and root by the tiniest sprig. This is the genesis of faith, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. What is the moral of this story? The flesh is small, the flesh is nothing, and God takes what is small and makes it great. He makes something out of nothing. Now, I do not think that David's life is the story of a hero. Kolbrucha comes with his grace guns ablazing. He says, don't even try to remind me of David's lust 
and his murderous intention, please remember even one of your own lusts will poke fun at your feigned holiness. All your promises, all your intentions, all your spiritual New Year's resolutions, all your disciple-making theories stretched too thin for you. David did not pretend to be devoted. He is flesh, a mere man whose lust got the better of him. That is what flesh looks like. But are you ready for some more scandal? Psalm 8, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. I can almost not say it. You have given him dominion over your works. You've put all things under his feet. Kolbucha says that this is why David can say, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. David is flesh and so am I and so are you. And Jesus comes in the flesh. So give it a rest. Give your arrogance a rest. Just give it a rest. Blessed is the one who transgressions are forgiven, whose sin are covered. Now, by now, you, you probably think that Kolbrüche is a, is a one-trick pony. Uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed in the, uh, in the text in the Gospel of Matthew, throughout this genealogy, there are several times, strangely, that Matthew reminds us of the time of the deportation to Babylon. It's in verse 11, and again in verse 12, and then it's again in verse 17. Three, three times in one genealogy about the deportation to Babylon. And Kolbuche is clear about what this means. He says, anyone who does not submit to the preaching of righteousness through faith, but looks for righteousness through works, gets deported into Babylonian exile. If you do not let go of your self-creation, self-cleaning, self-elevation, which in the end will amount to nothing, you will suffer expulsion to Babylon. And he plants salvation smack dab in the middle of our lostness. This is God who quickens the dead and calls those things which are not as though they were. The story of the genesis of Jesus. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. A sprig, a twig. No one saw this coming. God has done the unthinkable. No one was paying attention to the stump of Jesse, overpowered by all the mighty trees. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Oh, I wish we had time. Maybe I get to come back sometime. We could look at Jacob, the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, through whom Jesus is born. But for now, all that remains to say with the psalmist is, God, you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. You are the God who works wonders and you have made known your might among the peoples. There you have it. This is how Matthew shows us without any pomp and circumstance 
that God alone is righteous. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We have a few minutes. In, see, I wish we had time because in Kolbuch's commentary, she's very fleshy. She's very real. She's very human. Yes. 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 <laughs> I have honestly never been asked that after a talk. Did you make that up? That is brilliant. That is a great question. A, a recurring theme in, in the story of Tamar, and you, he also actually does this with Jacob. He does it with Rebecca, particularly in the story of Genesis, where people are scheming and conniving and trying to take matters into their own. They're trying to accomplish the blessing. Kolbuch actually sees it as people who, in the midst of their sins, somehow desperately were clinging to God's word. And it is not perfect faith. It is not beautiful faith. It is the faith that is maybe as small as a mustard seed, but it accomplishes it a lot. And so it does not excuse, it does not say that she was justified. No, she was a sinner. And she is part of the fleshy story of Jesus. going to and and partly because if grace is an ocean and we're sinking in it and as as Kolbucha says the growth in grace happens the more that I recognize my own sinfulness and my deep need for him everything then even your habitual and besetting sins will somehow dare I say it end up glorifying God because it will drive down deep your need for a fleshy savior. 
Now, he, far, far be it from him. Actually, you, you notice he actually, uh, this is in his commentary on 1 Peter. He talks about how grace is not only the forgiveness of sins, but it is also the endowment of royalty upon those who believe. And so grace comes with an invitation for you to live as royalty because that is what you are. So that's not, that's not antinomia. That's saying, no, this, you have an identity to live into. I think at some point he also uses the analogy of an adoption. If I were to adopt you into my family, now you are Matt, Matter Blackman or doc, Dr. Matthew Blackman. <laughs> uh, and, and I have paid for your adoption. And you don't have to do anything to make that adoption happen. But when you come sit at my dinner table, I say, no, we're, we're Blackmans. We eat with you know, a knife in the right hand and a fork in the left hand. This is the way that you see it. I knew it. Uh, <laughs> This is, the way we, this is the way we behave. And so now you are part of the Blackman family. You have to discover what it's like to live as a Blackman. You've lived as a, you've lived as a milliner, but now, now you're a Blackman, and this is what we do. We're kind of, you know, Afro-European. Um, and that's what Paul's saying to the Exactly, exactly, yeah. But I'm, I'm always nervous when we get nervous about pushing grace too far. Because I, I think we're, my sense is that we're just scratching the surface. I think it's God, God is way better than we think. Yeah, go ahead. There's a modern saying that is, bizarre travel instructions are things in the kingdom of God. Yeah. I kind of feel like this is bizarre genealogy. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's exactly what Kolbuchen means when he says everything humanly attainable is insufficient. It, you can try the best of the best of your abilities, and even then, it will not be good enough. This also actually, I mean, to, to not go into too much detail, uh, there was at the time a strong reaction in the Netherlands against the French Revolution. Of course, the French Revolution prided itself in having great intellect and promise and uh, freeing themselves from God and having every invention and every bit of civilization come from ridding itself of its Christian past. And so this is, this is Kohlbrüch's way of saying that revolution will amount to nothing because it is all flesh. And the flesh amounts to nothing. Yes, yes. So as I said in the introduction this morning, he was in between two very large movements in the Dutch Reformed Church. On the one hand, you could call them the pious, people who looked to their own spiritual and moral excellence as the basis for their salvation. And on the other hand, the super orthodox, with whom he actually agreed theologically, but he believed that their addiction doctrinal accuracy was a mighty fortress against God. So he was in between. And so the pious kept him 
from getting ordained in the Lutheran church when he just came out of seminary. And then for 16 years, the reformed folks, the orthodox folks, kept him from serving in a church in the Netherlands. And that's why he was forced to go serve at a church in Germany. And this was, this was a, I, I, I think it's, it's difficult for me to overestimate how brutal this was for him. One of his autobiographies, is, or one of his biographies is called, Without a Pulpit, I Cannot Live. And, and for him, that meant a pulpit in the Netherlands. Um, and one, one, there's a funny story, actually. At one point, the, the two ministers who were most influential in Utrecht, in a small town there, uh, and they, they kept blocking him for a long time. When they died, the day that they died was a Sunday morning, he, or a Saturday, a Saturday morning, and he gets, in, he gets notice that they have died, and he immediately gets an invitation to preach in the cathedral. And then all of a sudden, the doors begin to open. And then on a more regular basis, he would be invited as a guest preacher. And then when he would come, the place would be filled with thousands upon thousands of people. Yeah. Uh, it's, been my, it's been my pleasure. <laughs>